You know, Miles, I've been reading a lot, and Blink is just remarkably resilient. It's true, Jay. She's kind of the kid of the team, and she's already been through so much by the time she joins them. Joins them? Hell, she survives the end of that universe. But that's just Age of Apocalypse, Blink. The 616 version's nothing to scoff at, either. Wait, didn't the 616 version die during the Phalanx Covenant? She was eventually retconned to have survived. But there's actually a third weirder option. Before that retcon, there was a what-if issue in which she, well, also survived. Oh, cool. So did she go join Generation X? No, she got shunted to an alternate dimension full of bubbles where she realized that she had the power to change time by popping them. So she went back to the past and made it so she didn't blink herself to death. Oh, heck no. She decided to completely fix the world. Did it work? It did not. She basically destroyed it. That's not good. And in the process, she accidentally usurped the power and identity of one of the cosmic incarnations of the concept of balance. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 290 of Jan Miles Explain the X-Men, currently Jan Miles Explain the Age of Apocalypse, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, and, at the moment, its dark post-apocalyptic alternate universe. And here we are in our own somewhat apocalyptic universe. Uh, we're recording this on March 23rd, and boy, stuff's weird out there. Yeah, I... I feel like saying the date we're recording it is 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 veering awfully close into like doomed scientist voice log video game territory. The next episode's <laughs> just gonna be four itchy tasty. Nice. But yeah, no, it is it's really bizarre recording this early because things have been changing so, so rapidly. I feel like we should be just like marking the status quo as we go. So um New York's officially been on been on um, legally mandated shelter at home now for a little over 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, Portland just went to enforced stay at home as well today, in fact. Yeah, I'm not sure if 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 um New York New York City has hit um officially five digits of of coronavirus cases yet, but if not it's teetering very very close. The most recent Specific news on that front, which is sort of surreal, is that they are they are uh, turning the Javits Center into multiple field hospitals. Oh, man. I mean, in some ways, that sounds more pleasant than New York Comic Con. I was going to say, it's definitely an additional impetus to avoid risk. But yeah, whenever you listen to this uh, in the uh, indeterminate future from when we record it, we hope you're doing okay. It's really rough out there. So best wishes, best luck, and we're thinking about all of you. If you're an alien intelligence who's dug this up from the, you know, wreckage of humanity, or at least the wreckage of, like, the United States, since other countries seem to pretty much have their shit together on this one, um, I hope the future's cool and you've got flying cars. Read some X-Men. Yeah, X-Men is fun. But meanwhile, yeah, as Miles said, stay as safe as you can. We recognize that in a fucked up capitalist society that can be something of a catch-22 um so i guess the other part is overthrow capitalism but yeah if if you are in a position to 
not go out, don't. I suspect you've already heard and read and seen this ad infinitum by now. And again, I don't know how applicable it's going to be in two weeks. But the best the best thing I, I can say is that social distancing and shelter at home aren't about not being uh, not not about your own level of risk. They're not about protecting yourself. They're about protecting everyone and not being a vector of infection. So please, if you can, if you are in a position to do that, do that. If you are not, if you need help, um, as always, we have a large and active social network and will happily signal boost and and leverage um, general general call-outs and questions. In the meantime, there is an age of apocalypse out there, or at least there was back in 1995, and we want to tell you about it. This one's fictional, which is kind of a relief. Right. But before we dive into the actual age of apocalypse proper, let's talk about what got us to this point. Right, so, we are on Earth-295, as distinct from the main Marvel Universe, Earth-616. Now, 295 replaced 616 when Professor X was accidentally killed while saving his best friend Magneto from Xavier's time-traveling son Legion 20 years in the past of 1995, so sometime in the mid-70s. Or thereabouts. Age of Apocalypse, or at least this part of it, is mostly set in the United States, which is controlled in Earth-295 by the survival of the fittest and fish-lipped robot guy, Apocalypse, and his evil, evil empire. He easily took over much of the world without Professor X and his X-Men to oppose him in this reality. And we should say that Apocalypse's concept of survival of the fittest is kind of a stretch from the original theory. Now, Magneto did form the X-Men ultimately in Xavier's honor, trying to protect the humans in a world run by apocalypse's mutant supremacist dogma unfortunately he did it a little too late to make the critical difference that xavier's x-men had these days the x-men are primarily the resistance hiding out in the ruins of the xavier mansion in westchester that resistance was going kind of well it was not well kind of well ish no until they met a stranger named bishop who showed up and told magneto that reality was all wrong and it was kind of magneto's fault Because Bishop, due to his time anomaly status, survived from Earth-616 and made it into the past of Earth-295, where he's been for the last 20 years. This put Magneto in a difficult position, so he did what any reasonable leader would do. Split the party into a five-pronged mission to fix the multiverse. That five-pronged mission was split up into five different comics, five of the significantly more than five comics that made up Age of Apocalypse. Because the entire X-Universe was cancelled when the world ended, and each of the X-Books was replaced with another one that roughly corresponded to it. Today, we're going to be talking about Astonishing X-Men, which pretty much corresponds to Uncanny X-Men. Now, it's hard to make quite precise allegories or connections between the books just because the casts get shaken up so much. So we're connecting them partly by role in the line and partly by creative team. In this case, Scott Lobdell and Joe Madrera. Exactly. So you may have heard of Astonishing X-Men before. Specifically, you may have heard of it because it is Joss Whedon's celebrated run from the 2000s, the run that followed up Grant Morrison's new X-Men run. That was actually Astonishing X-Men Volume 3. This is Volume 1. 
There was also a volume two, which was this three-issue miniseries by Howard Mackey, and so thus I assume Kandra was probably in it. And that was during the Shattering Era, which was a story where the X-Men disbanded because, well, scrolls. Ah, yes, and um, in this story, I believe the, the ex-X-Men fought the new Horseman of Death, who at this point was Wolverine, because the Wolverine on the team was a scrawl, and I'm so depressed that we're going to have to cover that eventually. The important part is the other two books called Astonishing are pretty good, and I'll be perfectly honest, I haven't read the Mackie one. Maybe it's a gem shining in that dreary part of the late 90s. I've read bits and pieces. It exists. Well, anyway... The X-Men, just like in Earth-616, are split into two teams during Age of Apocalypse. And that's not because there's like a blue team and a gold team, it's just because there are two simultaneous missions, which we'll get to. So this team, which is an astonishing X-Men, that's Rogue, Blink, Sabretooth, Wild Child, Morph, and Sunfire. Now, most of these characters will essentially die with the end of the Age of Apocalypse, with two notable standouts. Blink and Sabretooth are going to be in exiles for a long time, as will eventually an alternate universe morph who's basically the same as this one. Basically, but not technically, X-Men. There's a lot of universes out there. Sure are. The other team of X-Men, often Amazing X-Men, which is the equivalent of adjectiveless X-Men, are Quicksilver, Storm, Exodus, Iceman, Banshee, and Dazzler. We'll get to them later. Weirdly, neither X-Men mission has anything to do with the core mission of Age of Apocalypse, namely fixing reality. Yeah, I mean, the X-Men are doing important stuff in Astonishing X-Men and Amazing X-Men, but it's not necessarily stuff that has anything to do with Bishop saying, reality is wrong! It's just, like, hero stuff. It kind of makes sense to me that this book stands alone more than any of the others, because if it's the flagship of AOA, it's going to be the book that more people buy on its own than any of the other titles. Like, if you have someone who's following... Generation X, who's following Excalibur, odds are probably pretty decent that they're at least aware of the rest of the stuff in the line, or have some connection to it or some access to it. And I don't think you can necessarily assume the opposite. I think there are probably a lot more people who are just buying the flagship X books. Now, it's interesting you mention uh, the equivalent of this book, which would have been Uncanny X-Men, being the flagship of the line, because for a long time that wasn't the case. For a long time the flagship was adjectiveless X-Men, because it had the X-Men Blue team, the characters from the cartoon. I sort of think of those as the same title, honestly. I wasn't so much thinking of Uncanny as thinking of the books with X-Men in the title. But the thing is, I think you're totally right, because at this point in X-Men history, Joe Matarera had just taken over as artist on Uncanny, even though he had a big gap after Phalanx Covenant, and he was blowing people's minds like on almost the same level that, say, Rob Liefeld or Jim Lee were doing a couple of years before. But so much better. I mean, I like Jim Lee, but yeah, yeah Matarera's art is freaking amazing, and that's, I think, part of why Astonishing X-Men is one of the most well-remembered central Age of Apocalypse books in the line. Yeah, and I think this is... I think what we're seeing in Age of Apocalypse here is kind of proof of concept for the style that's going to define a lot of the remainder of the decade. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Before we get started, I do want to talk a little bit about how we're going to cover the core books of Age of Apocalypse, because we're not doing prequels anymore, we're not doing the intro book of X-Men Alpha, now we're doing the series that make up present day, which is to say 1995, Age of Apocalypse. Present time. Right. They were all coming out at the same time, and so, you know, if you were reading the whole line, you would read all the number ones one month, all the number twos the next month, 
We could cover it that way in the podcast, but it would make no goddamn sense and be impossible to follow. We would be juggling, you know, five series, really more than five series, the casts, entirely separate casts of every single book. We'd be in space, we'd be on Earth, we'd be all over the place. And we felt like this was the most thorough way to give you a good grounding from which you could understand each additional piece as it was added. And to Age of Apocalypse's credit, that kind of works. I mean, we'll see things happen that are based on what's going on in other books, but for the most part, each set of four issues tells a distinct story. Think of it kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You don't start at the left and work your way over sequentially. You start with the outline and put together pieces where you can connect images and then start to do that on a macro level. That's what we're shooting for here. With all of that said, let's talk about Astonishing X-Men number one, Once More with Feeling. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend and Dan Green, colored by Steve Bucolato, and separated by Digital Chameleon. In my memory, this was the cool X-Men book, and I'm realizing so much of that was Matarera's art. Like, overall, I prefer Fabian Nassiez's writing to Scott Lobdell's, but just the cartoony, colorful, sharp-edged anime style in this was so goddamn appealing to young Miles. It's so dramatic, too, that opening. Oh, I know. It begins with the breaking of a man's heart and a searing of his soul. Why do you think they decided to go with the definite article for breaking, but the indefinite for searing? Uh, maybe his heart has only been broken once, but his soul has been seared, like, every single day. Uh, the man, by the way, is Magneto. And that's interesting, because this phrase has been used in very similar phrasings in both Uncanny X-Men number 94, that's the issue right after Giant Size X-Men number 1, and X-Men number 25, both times referring to Professor Xavier as his team has been going through a time of strife. And I love that this issue is just bringing it right back to those two famous and very well-selling parts. Just to clarify, when you say time of strife, you mean with an I, right? Uh, right, right. Not strife with a Y. He's off presumably attempting to feed his parents baby food off in oblivion. Anyway, the other thing that this does, other than evoke those issues, is ground Magneto very solidly in the Charles Xavier role. Exactly, and I think that is really, really clever. I mean, he's not going around yelling to me my X-Men in this story, but he is so clearly trying to fill Professor Xavier's shoes in every way he can and constantly worrying that he just can't do it and has been failing the whole time. Oh man, is Magneto at least going to get to yell to me my X-Men at some point? Because I feel like he'd do it really well. And man, if anyone has earned it, it's AOA, Magneto. For serious. And what he's asking his X-Men to do right now is to go on a suicide mission based on the rantings of a madman claiming to be from an alternate universe, saying that reality needs to be rewritten. So that's a hell of a way to start. Yeah, that's that's quite a jump. That would be Bishop, by the way. Um, and it really struck me here. I hadn't read Age of Apocalypse recently when I last read um, Age of X. But looking back on the latter now, it's really, really striking how much that Magneto drew from this one. Yeah, I feel like Age of X, man, like nobody really talks about it. Nobody really remembers it in the same way that you remember 
Age of Apocalypse, House of M, or even Age of X-Man, just because it was this one little event at a time when X-Men was sort of flying under everyone's radar. Oh, I love it. It's my second favorite alternate universe. It actually, it might be my favorite. It's it's definitely up there with Age of Apocalypse, though. They're so different structurally. It's like comparing your favorite novel to your favorite short story. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It totally is. But in this story, we have members of both halves of the X-Men here together. The X-Men haven't split up on their missions yet because this issue, more than any other, takes place right after X-Men Alpha. Now, the credits claim that this will be, and I quote, the most outrageous X-Men story ever. And I am pretty sure that's false advertising. I mean, I was kind of outraged when Angel fucked a teenager in the sky over her mom. That hadn't happened yet, though. I know, I'm just saying. If you're saying ever, then you're referring to the future as well as the past. Point. But but yeah, I I, I do feel like this is this is not even even if you're referring to the past, I mean you've got the whole Silver Age and the whole Claremont era to draw from. Well, as Magneto is giving his big dramatic speech, Morph is very much being Morph, and we're going to see him do the same thing over and over and over in this story, which is to just be far more of the jokester figure of the comic relief than Iceman or anybody like that ever was. Like, he's standing behind Sabretooth with Sabretooth's face replacing his and just going grr, grr, grr the whole time. And as for whether that works, whether that adds to the story or detracts from it, uh, let's definitely keep an eye on that as we talk about these four issues. Uh, I, I see in your notes that that at least um, back in the day, a very young Miles thought that this absolutely worked. Uh, yes, I totally did. I thought Morph was hilarious and I loved him and he had a cape and that was great. That's all it took? A cape? You know, a cape and a sense of humor. That's kind of all it takes, to be honest. Okay, fair. Well, all of this drama and levity is interrupted by the teleportation arrival of, and I quote, critically wounded mutant cheesecake, because Blink and Sunfire, who had been losing a fight with one of Apocalypse's infinites elsewhere, have teleported into the X-Men's headquarters to get some help. Blink, by the way, is the one who says that line, and of the two of them, she appears to be fine, so presumably Sunfire is the critically wounded cheesecake in question. I think Cheesecake, I don't think a dude made of fire held together only by strips of black metal. Yeah, maybe like Crepe Suzette. (laughs) Yes, that. Nice little cameo here. Uh, The guy that comes through the portal is actually one of Apocalypse's prelates, and this is Delgado, who is one of Magneto's acolytes in Earth-616. Oh, dang! Possibly he was a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent? I actually uh, wrote down the Wolverine quote, trying to disambiguate this from one of the first few issues of Adjectiveless. Different guy, same name. Or maybe the Major was a sleeper, working with the clowns he was supposedly chasing. Or maybe he switched sides. Or maybe somebody made him. However the man came here, Beast, he means business. We can figure out the backstory after we take him down. And that is why Delgado is my favorite acolyte, because he has so much unnecessary convoluted continuity just in his name. See, that's why I think you shouldn't flesh out Wolverine's backstory too much, because then you get to have moments like that. So I want to talk about some of the visuals in this scene, because as we've already alluded to a number of times already, the visuals in Astonishing X-Men are one of its greatest strengths. Visual number one, as Sunfire falls out of Blink's portal, Magneto catches Sunfire in this giant metal fist made out of strips of metal that he, like, instantly pulls out of the ground, and it is awesome. But that obscures what I think is the 
most astonishing visual of this entire line. People ask, have asked us about, you know, the best look of Age of Apocalypse, and the answer is Sunfire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Sunfire is amazing, whether he's Cheesecake or Crepe Suzette. Like I mentioned a second ago, he's on fire constantly. And aside from being in a roughly human form, like the Human Torch, what mainly defines him is this sort of skeletal black structure of, it looks like metal bands or maybe it's plates armor. that are riveted to him. Yeah. And, but they don't cover his entire body. They're just, they're almost like a skeleton. They're just little bits and pieces here and there. And then he has a blank white mask with the rising sun on it covering his face that looks kind of like a skull. And he just looks so apocalyptic, for lack of a better word. He has what looks like it's modeled after a kabuki mask, specifically. Yeah, yeah, actually, that would make a lot of sense. I didn't catch that, but I think you're, you're totally right. Also, his speech bubbles are on fire. All of them are on fire all the time, and I love that. Well, I want to go back to his appearance a little bit, because you talked about the, the armor he's wearing, and I think a really critical detail of it is that it's not a containment suit. This is not something that is containing him in any way. The, the impression he gives is of a person or of a force whose personhood is barely held together. Now, yeah. we're going to find out later in the series that he does still have at least some of a human body under this. But that's the skeleton. That's the framework. That's the relic of what was destroyed. And when it is exposed, it's a really, well, it's really kind of a searing moment that it underlines beautifully. But the armor is is incredibly elegant. Like, it's there. Actually, what it reminds me of is a much less creepy version of, of Cameron Hodge's cut-out three-piece suit, cardboard three-piece suit. It's the pretense of humanity and the pretense of the uniform over against something that is far, far more elemental than person or sees himself as that, at, the, at least at this point. Yeah, yeah. And as we learn more about Sunfire's backstory in Age of Apocalypse, that starts to make a whole lot of sense. Because uh, he's he's had a real rough go of it, like, more than most people. Man, Age of Apocalypse Sunfire. This, this series in general, this series has such good characters. I was gonna say, Age of Apocalypse Sunfire is one of the, the arguable protagonists here, and sort of characters around whose catharsis and around whose development and around whose moments this series centers. But there are a lot of those. Like, this is a really good ensemble book, but it's an ensemble book that features a lot of just absolutely breathtaking individual moments. Yeah, completely agree. That's something Lobdell has always excelled at, and he totally does here. Before we move on from visuals, though, I have to disagree with something you said in a recent episode, Jay. I really like Rogue's Age of Apocalypse hair, at least as Joe Matarera draws it. Like, it's got this ghost-in-the-shell thing going on that is fucking great. So I will actually concede that point to you. Um, yeah, Joe Matarera does it fantastically and has me sold on him drawing it. The other thing that makes a big difference to me is that she's got her cape for most of this series. She's wearing a big green cloak, which obscures that super bulky collar, which is what off-balances the hair so badly. You know... That makes a lot of sense. Once again, capes are half of what you need, right there. It all comes back to capes. Anyway, the reason that Blink and Sunfire are here, aside from fleeing a very confusingly named prelate, is to deliver some news, which is that Apocalypse, 
So he had said that the slaughter of humanity in Seattle back in X-Men Alpha, that he didn't know anything about it because he was subject to the Kelly Pact, a sort of truce with humanity. Yeah, that was all bullshit. He's actually expanding the cullings of humanity, and by cullings we mean wholesale slaughter, and his son, Holocaust, is in charge of it. So, current American politics. Uh, You know, I mean, there are some parallels, maybe. Oh man, Don Jr. and that kind of containment? I don't want to think about that. Okay, he is basically Bobby Newport, though. (laughs) Well, there is that. (laughs) So... Rogue is going to lead half of the team, the astonishing half of the team, if you will, to stop these cullings. But before that team leaves, Gambit, who is still here from X-Men Alpha, wants to say goodbye. And it's too hard going back and forth and talking to myself. Jay, do you want to be Gambit or Rogue? I know for a fact that I cannot do Gambit's accent to save my life, so I guess I'll take Rogue. Rogue begins. So. So. I guess this is it. I guess so. Seeing as we won't be seeing each other again, I don't suppose you'd consent to a kiss goodbye? Remy, please. I'm married to your best friend. He was my best friend, Cher. But that all changed a long, long time ago. He should really break into song at that point. I would love to see Gambit as the main character of a musical. Or just Gambit and Rogue. Or Gambit, Rogue, and Magneto. I just want to see The Age of Apocalypse as a musical. A rock opera. See, I would still go with Executioner's Song. That'd be pretty good, too. I actually started writing it at one point. (laughs) Yeah. I think you should finish that someday. I would love to uh, see that on a stage, assuming stages ever open again. Gotta find a composer. So this issue came out before X-Men Chronicles number two, and that means this is the first time that what happened with Gambit and Magneto and Rogue is really alluded to. And I think this is actually a really masterful way of just sketching out the barest outlines of that without going into detail that the characters wouldn't talk about. Like, they're not doing an, as you know, Bob, here, and I really appreciate that. So Rogue does leave. She takes her team out to Chicago, one of the sites of the Cullings, and a nice little touch she magnetically transports them there in a giant metal sphere, just like Polaris used to do for X-Factor. Because remember, in Age of Apocalypse, Rogue didn't absorb Carol Danvers' powers, she absorbed Lorna Dane's. Now, Rogue is doing this without Magneto's blessing. She has decided independently, as the deputy leader of the X-Men, to take a team and do this. And Quicksilver gets there in time to almost stop her, but she and ultimately Morph, who is pretending to be Magneto, um, effectively explain to him why it has to happen, convince him otherwise, and distract him for long enough for them, you know, to get off into the air. Meanwhile, some random dude named Rex, who I guess is Apocalypse's, I don't know, flunky, lieutenant, spy master, it's never really explained, he goes to tell Apocalypse about how... Their prelate, uh, Delgado, did indeed make it into the X-Mansion, and therefore Apocalypse's forces are getting closer to learning where Magneto lives. I looked up Rex. He's just sort of a guy. Like, there's really very little to him. Is he perhaps Earth-295's version of Rex Morgan, M.D.? You know, it's it's very possible. It's very possible. There is a 616 version of Rex that shows up very briefly as a random mercenary dude in post-Age of Apocalypse X-Man, but but that's it. You know what I wish they'd done with characters like, more characters like Rex? What's that? Instead of trying to make them 
significant story figures in 616. I wish they'd had more of the ones who were just sort of randomly thrown together, or even ones who were kind of central, be just bit background characters. Be, you know, the guy behind the counter who sells the X-Men sodas on the way to another adventure. I love the idea of characters who are really significant in one universe just being regular people in another one. Almost even more than the idea that everyone sort of falls into the same rules of heroism or villainy or at least plot centrality. I think the main reason they don't do that in Age of Apocalypse is because all of those characters are dead. Well, yeah, obviously in Age of Apocalypse they don't, but when they're going back to the 616 and seeding Age of Apocalypse introduced characters into there. That would be pretty cool, yeah. And it's kind of cool the way they throw in one of the Bedlam brothers in X-Force, but we're getting way ahead of ourselves. The point is, the only reason we bring up this scene with random dude Rex Morgan MD 295 is because of what Apocalypse is doing. He is sitting on a spiky chair, floating over hundreds of thousands of burning skeletons because goddamn he is the evil overlord of this world, and he is taking the evil overlord role to heart. Yeah, he likes the way they smell, apparently. I've never smelled hundreds of thousands of burning skeletons before, so I don't know, maybe it's really nice. And he is living his best life, as Rex notes, My lord, your face, what's wrong? Nothing, Rex. It's a smile. <laughs> And that brings us to Astonishing X-Men number two, No Exit. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Madrera, inked by Tim Townsend and Dan Green, colored by Steve Buccolato and Digital Chameleon. And we open in the city once known as Chicago, where Apocalypse's probes are panicking and scattering the remaining human population while a way team tries to figure out what the hell to do. And it is a really rough time for Sunfire. Sunfire is, as it turns out, the sole survivor of Japan. Like, all of it. And he starts to freak out and burn everything, not realizing that he's also endangering the fleeing human population just as much as the bad guys are. Partly by being on fire and partly by panicking them, because all they know is that powerful mutants are coming to kill them. They don't know that the guy on fire is one of the good guys. Right. So ultimately, Rogue ends up absorbing his powers and a lot of his survivor's guilt to get him to power down, which is, among other things, the first time that we see Sunfire not on fire, and we see sort of the, the burned remains of, of his, his original human body. But we also see a bit of his backstory, and I don't know how literal it's supposed to be, because on one hand, it's pretty over the top, but on the other hand, I could definitely see Apocalypse trying to drown a child in an actual lake of blood. Yeah, yeah, he tries to drown Sunfire in a lake of blood in front of a mountain of corpses. Again, Apocalypse is just dialing this evil overlord thing to 11. Maybe this is why he doesn't have a horseman of pestilence, because there are so many just stacks of corpses that it basically takes care of itself. Maybe, yeah. But, I don't know, like, this is a super tragic scene, obviously. I mean, it's horrific. Like, there are thousands, presumably millions, even billions of people dead. And it's laid out really beautifully. Some of the common tools for distinguishing flashbacks from plot proper have to do with color or drawing style. Those basically stay the same here, but the layout style and panel composition changes significantly, and it's a really beautiful device and really beautifully executed. 
Madara's style also really works for Apocalypse in scenes like this, because he's drawing super horrific stuff, but it's made a little more palatable by how almost Saturday morning cartoon it looks, and nowhere is that truer than the way he draws Apocalypse, who goes from fury to maniacal laughter in seconds, like full body emoting the whole way. It, in a way, makes him scarier. He's almost a little mojo-like, because he's this sort of semi-goofy figure the way Matarera draws him, but just dripping with menace. Like, he clearly can do horrible, horrible things to people, but he's also just sort of a blue robot guy. Yeah, Apocalypse is an inherently cartoonish figure. He's got a cartoonish design and a cartoonish concept. And I think he's at his best when, when artists and writers really lean into that. If you try too hard to make Apocalypse feasible in any way, you lose a huge amount of what makes him effective as a character. Now, Sunfire is not the only one here who's having issues and who's struggling with his past. In fact, Sabretooth convinces Blink to teleport him to Holocaust so that he can buy the X-Men some additional time. Because remember, Sabretooth himself was a former horseman of Apocalypse. He used to work with Holocaust back when Holocaust was Nemesis. Clarice, I need you to send me to Holocaust so I can take one last poke at him. Then... I need one other thing. Name it. After he takes me out, and make no mistake, he will, I need you to kick his butt all the way back to hell and tell him that was for Victor Creed. Can you do that for me, Pop? Yes, sir. Now, she's not just teleporting Sabretooth. She's teleporting Sabretooth and Wildchild, which seems wildly unfair to Wildchild until they get there. You find out what Sabretooth was actually planning, which is pretty brilliant. Because Holocaust, being Holocaust, cannot resist villain-splaining his entire plan to Sabretooth right before he tries to kill Sabretooth. That's right, he's killing humans and mutants as fuel for his infinite processing plant, where he makes his super soldiers. And along with this talk, he tells Sabretooth the plant's precise location— and says, well, it doesn't matter if, you know, it's precisely 20 miles north of here and here are its, its you know, GPS coordinates. And here's how to get there from two different, you know, routes because he assumes Sabretooth is about to die. Of course, Sabretooth just turns to his animalistic buddy Wildchild and says, Did you get that, kid? And turns him loose and Wildchild gallops away and it is great. Sabretooth is clearly so much smarter than Holocaust. Like, Holocaust is more powerful, sure, absolutely. But Sabretooth just has no respect for this dude, and he is so enjoying making a fool out of him. Oh yeah, Holocaust is a box of rocks on fire. A box of rocks on fire. The Holocaust story. That's probably a bad title for that book. That's just a bad name. Holocaust? Why did you call yourself Holocaust? Seriously, you had a perfectly good code name in Nemesis. It sounded badass, and it wasn't in horrible taste. You know that he picked it without thinking about the context, and so he, like, memorized the dictionary definition just so he can bring it up like the most obnoxious bro on Twitter every time someone tells him that it was a bad choice. Ugh, Holocaust, you fucking edgelord. Not even, though, because, like, not even deliberately. He's not doing it to be edgy. He insists that, no, no, he's doing it based on its proper original definition. Ugh, even worse. Well, Holocaust does appear to uh, kill Sabretooth, unfortunately. And even though Sabretooth takes the helmet off of Holocaust's life support suit, yeah, it doesn't really take him out. Holocaust just reforms, keeps his structural integrity, and eventually goes and gets a new helmet. Now... 
Back at stately Xavier Manor, an entirely different tragic scene is playing out. Bishop comes to yell at Magneto um, and has an abrupt change of heart when he realizes that Magneto is busy saying goodbye to the main thing he stands to lose if this reality crumbles, which is his most recent kid. Because a lot of these characters at least somewhat have, you know, counterparts in 616, but they'll cease to exist, and Charles doesn't. Charles isn't isn't going to wake up the version of himself that ought to have existed. He is there there is no that version of him. If everything you tell me is true, in order to recreate this world in its proper image, his is but one life that will be sacrificed as a result. I will tell you right now, I don't know if I will be able to do that. Tomorrow, as you say, this world might have to die. Please give me tonight to say goodbye to my son. The one I like, I mean. Oh, come on. It's sweet. Yeah, no, I am being, I, I am being genuinely unfair at this point. For all that Magneto is a passive-aggressive asshole of a father in 616, he and Pietro are actually pretty close in 295, and he's actually a pretty good parent. And it's also, like, the difference makes sense here, because Pietro is a grown-up who is going into this consentingly and with his eyes open, and Charles is an ambiguous toddler um, who's still wholly dependent on his parents and, and robot and can't really be like, yes, I'm okay with sacrificing my entire reality. And that takes us to Astonishing X-Men number three, In Excess, plotted by Scott Lobdell, with dialogue by Jeff Loeb, pencils by Joe Matarera, inks by Tim Townsend and Al Milgram, colors by Steve Bucolato, and separations by Digital Chameleon. And as this issue begins, Wildchild is running the hell away from Holocaust. But it doesn't really work out so well because he's shot down and, hey, there's Holocaust stepping on his chest and giving a big evil speech about evil things. We haven't talked much about Wildchild, but Matarera's take on him, and I'm just going to keep coming back to Matarera's art, is great. Like, Wildchild's face is so elongated and animalistic, and his body language is just so feral, lowercase f. Like, there's no subtlety, there's no calm, it's all just energy and intensity. He's another character whose cartooniness is so much of his personality and so much, much of what makes him work narratively. Yeah, absolutely. And Holocaust, in his badass armor full of lava, ponders how to dispose of Wild Child, and then suddenly has a, a top hat? And a cane? As he tells the Infinites who've gathered around to find out what their master is going to tell them to do. Wait a minute. I've got it. We can put on a show. Sure, a show. It'll be loads of fun. Uncle Joe has some costumes, and we can use the old barn for a stage. Of course, of course I'll star, but that goes without saying. Because, of course, it's Morph being a total doofus and distracting everyone, and then Sunfire shows up and uh, just incinerates all the infinites after they don't surrender. I don't know, I go back and forth on Morph, because this is such a dark reality and he's so fucking ridiculous, but in a way, I think that juxtaposition kind of highlights the darkness, and I think it also brings the X-Men a little bit of heart. It makes them seem more human when they're reacting to him being annoying rather than just being depressed all the time. So, I am going to go to my favorite, one of my favorite quotations of all time, from prob one of my favorite authors of all time, which is, is George Orwell, which is specifically, it's a line from 1984. 
But in a lot of ways, it's kind of Orwell's general ethos, which is the obvious, the silly, and the true had got to be defended. And two of those values are pretty straightforward and are ones you see in, in pretty much every take on Orwell. The third or the second one listed is something of an outlier, at least it looks like it, which is the silly. And I think in some ways it's a it's it's one of the most important. It's it's critical. It's kind of the heart of the triad because resistance against a regime whose whose power is as much about fear or propaganda or dogma or ideology or or, or you know any of those other things as it is about physical force is partly about retaining the ability to laugh at it and retaining the ability to laugh. And what Morph does, you know, Morph is a silly dude in general, but his silliness is almost always aimed in the direction of gently pulling down the pants of power if it's if he's pretending to be one of the good guys and effectively slapstick banana peeling power if it's the bad guys. I mean, his version of Holocaust is silly and it's a silly moment. And of course, everyone who's, you know, in a position of power who sees it ends up dying immediately. But if they didn't, imagine going back and trying to take Holocaust's dictates seriously after that. Yeah, no, it works so well. Like, he is the concept of parody in a way that, yeah, can be annoying, but it's important. And it's important, too, to look at the fact that satire isn't primary the primary audience of satire isn't its target it's the people who are harmed by or in a position to resist its target Mm -hmm. very very good point so i'm gonna say morph is a silly dude but what morph clings to in terms of humor and its importance is also a legitimate value to him. It's not just that he's a one-note character, it's that he's a character who deeply cares about and embodies a specific principle. Totally. What's also really important is how the fleeing wild child, who's nonverbal, gets the information of what happened to the X-Men. Yeah, so the only one who can really remotely communicate with him, or or at least understand him, was Sabretooth. Um, with few other options, Wild Child decides to take the direct route and just licks Rogue. And I love it. It is such a goofy panel because he's got this giant tongue and he just has this expression on his face that to me just says, and I love you, Kyle, whatever your last name is. Wild Child, you are wonderful. And man, with again, with just like the Joe Madera's take on this character is so great. His take on this character as overlaid over Rogue when she takes on some of his characteristics is great, too. Oh, yeah, she's got these long, fangy teeth and bony fingers with long nails that are ripping through her gloves. It's great. Now, Sabretooth, as it turns out, was just mostly dead because Holocaust cannot resist continuing to villain Splain and shows Sabretooth the infinite processing plant he was mentioning before, where they're grinding up culled humans to make cloned infinite soldiers. It kind of actually reminds me of that time that I was in Hood River, Oregon, and saw the Tofurky factory, except Tofurky is way more ethical than cloned human soldiers made of shredded poor people who are being slaughtered. Well, anyway, Holocaust at that point does seem to really kill Sabretooth for real this time, and slashes him right into a flashback, of when he, against Logan's orders, 
rescued the young Clarice Ferguson, the young Blink, from a burning building. And Blink, with the other X-Men, is so desperate to find him and get him back, and so they all storm the infinite processing plant now that they know where it is. They do this by riding inside Morph, who takes the form of an enormous cartoon whale. Because of course he does. And then he turns into an octopus and sings songs while killing a bunch of infinites. You know, it's just Morph being Morph. But, uh, yeah, sure enough, after they fight their way through the infinites, Sabretooth does, for real, we swear this time, look pretty thoroughly dead. His ribs are hanging out, and he's chained up to a big piece of wood, and that's the end of the issue. Eh, he's had worse. Back in Westchester, though, where we left Magneto and Bishop sort of being grumpy at each other, yeah, they're they're still doing that, because Magneto's telling Bishop, no, dude, if we can send you back in time, you have got to kill Legion. And Bishop's resisting, saying, no, killing isn't what the X-Men are about. Okay, what happened to Lucas Bishop? Like, he was the guy that was always fine with killing people. He spent 20 years repeating Xavier's maxims in his head while climbing mountains of corpses and walking back from, like, Europe. Oh, well, uh, yeah, that'll do it. But uh, before they can be too grumpy at each other, Nanny, you know, the robot that fed the X-Men baby food that one time, as distinct from the time that Strife fed a couple of the X-Men baby food, she perks up. Not in this timeline. In this timeline, she's just a nanny. Right, but she perks up, yells something about Defcon Armageddon, wraps herself around young baby Charles in an egg of metal, and sinks into the basement. And... I gotta say, I don't want to compare babies or anything, but Nathan Christopher Summers could totally make his own bubble around himself. He didn't need a robot nanny. Oh, I think we all know that you live to compare babies. I live to compare babies. That's the entire reason that we started this podcast for this moment of comparing two babies. Baby judging. (laughs) Baby judging. So... We find out what happens with Magneto and Charles and Bishop and stuff over an amazing X-Men, but the short version is they get captured, the mansion gets destroyed again. For now, let's go to Astonishing X-Men number four, titled, Alas, Holocaust. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Madreira, inked by Tim Townsend and Al Milgram, colored by Steve Bucolato, with separations by Digital Chameleon. The first five full pages of this issue are an epically badass fight between Blink and Holocaust, and frankly... I think it was a mistake that they didn't just have her kill him there. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Like, I know they wanted Holocaust to be one of the characters that made it out of the Age of Apocalypse, but he didn't really do much cool. Why? To kill Rusty Collins? What the hell? I He's such a nothing character. Like, I really, I don't see the point. I also feel like if anyone should have had this moment, it should have been Blink. And this whole issue is basically everyone almost kills Holocaust, but he just sort of pops back up again like a freaking Squaresoft boss. Yup, pretty much. It is a badass fight, though. Like, this, I think, is the first issue that really got how cool Blink's powers could be in a fight, as she sort of uses them like like they're a portal gun from Portal. Like, she gets whacked across the room by Holocaust at one point, makes a portal, and then uses her momentum to smack into his back and stab him with her portal knife things. It reminds me a lot of that badass future fight scene from the Days of Future Past movie, where uh, Blink was using her powers to, like, redirect Sunspot's blasts and Colossus's punches and stuff like that. Like, they're just so visually engaging, those portals. Yeah, that was a mess of a movie, but definitely one of the cooler bits of fight choreography in it. Still possibly my favorite of the mainstream X-Men movies, I gotta say. 
Alas, Blink does not actually get to kill Holocaust. She gets to do a bunch of things that should have killed him, finally dumping him in his own genetic sludge. But of course, he digs his way out, and Rogue pretending to be Morph shows up as backup, followed closely by actual Morph. And nonetheless, Holocaust is kicking a lot of their asses, and he smacks Rogue all the way across the base, and she looks like she might be dying, or maybe even dead. There is a kind of horrifying and lovely bit where Morph basically jerks her out of that by briefly turning into Charles, which, damn. Morph has so much heart. Like, he's a goofy shit a lot of the time, but it's all from a place of genuine love and empathy, and he's so good at that when it's necessary. That's the other thing about him, is he's really compassionate and he's also really observant. Like, he knows his teammates incredibly, incredibly well. He does, yeah. It actually reminds me a lot of when he did a similar trick to shake Blink out of her depression in the Tales from the Age of Apocalypse issue that we covered last episode. Now, but Morph is not the only one who decides it's a good idea to invoke Rogue's kid. Holocaust brings up the fact that, well, Magneto, Bishop, and Charles have all been captured. So Rogue basically beats him to near death. And Holocaust is going to teleport back to Apocalypse's base, bringing Rogue with him so that Apocalypse can have a complete set, until Iceman shows up, and Ice lassos her out of the teleportation circle, standing next to a very much alive Sabretooth, because apparently it'll take at least three times of him dying for him to actually stay dead. Spoiler, even more. And even then, it's pretty iffy. Well, the bad guy's been beaten, but there are still a lot of humans who have been rounded up and are about to be killed on Holocaust's orders, so Sunfire and Wildchild go to help them out, and I love the way this plays out as far as Sunfire, as far as what his building fury ends up leading to. A brilliant light flashes down from on high, an atomic angel in search of vengeance. Three years before this moment, Shiro Yoshida bore witness to the genocide of his native Japan. For years, he heard their screams pounding in his head, waking him each night, and he wondered, why was he the only one spared? Why must he carry on without respite? Today, staring into the faces of those he's rescued, he has his answer at long last. Yeah, this character who's just been defined by his out-of-control, cold anger, he finally gets to sort of be a person again. Well, and that this is his catharsis, not revenge, is such a powerful thing and such a powerful moment. Oh, God. But it can't last forever, and Rogue, for one, has decided that this event has gone on long enough. All I know for certain is that tonight, one way or another, the Age of Apocalypse is over. And I love this final page. It's the X-Men doing their badass X-Men pose. They're all in shadow, but there are these flames behind them. This is actually one of the pages I show to people when I'm talking about Joe Matarera. It's just so goddamn striking. It, it really is. I mean, it is, it is the halfway through the series finale closing shot. Hands down, it's great. So that's Astonishing X-Men. The X-Men try to stop the human callings and beat up Holocaust and save some people, and in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of a small plot, but it still feels very, very X-Men. 
It really does. And that actually kind of brings me to our special topic for this week. As, as you know, we're, we're, ta- we're doing at least brief discussions of a, a connected topic to the universe every week that we cover the Age of Apocalypse. And this week, it's when mutants aren't a metaphor, because Age of Apocalypse is the X-Men without the mutant metaphor. Like, that aspect of mutant identity is entirely gone in this universe. That's true. The X-Men aren't struggling to protect a world that hates and fears them. They're a part of the overclass that is subjugating the world, but they've decided to help the underclass. Which brings up a question for me. To what extent does the world that hates and fears them, the idea of them as going deliberately and dangerously against a tide, need to be specifically for their mutations versus, say, as in this case, for political dissent? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they still feel like the X-Men in that regard. They're still fighting members of the group that they're a part of who want to use their powers for evil. They're still saying, no, we're not going to be selfish with the abilities that we've been granted. Instead, we're going to use them even when that means we have a lower social station, when that means we're in greater danger, when that means we have to sacrifice our lives. So in that regard, I think they line up pretty well with Xavier's X-Men in the 616. In some ways, I'd say they actually line up better because Xavier's dream is specifically about mutant and human equality and and integration and friendship and 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 equality and equity. And so having the X-Men fighting against a ruling mutant class makes as much sense as having them fighting against a ruling human class in that in that regard, at least. Yeah, yeah, I think it totally works. So ultimately, for me, what defines the X-Men in this dynamic is that they are fundamentally opposed to any party in uneven power. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. They're not anti-humanity or anti-mutants, they're anti-hegemony. Yeah, which I think fits the X-Men very well indeed. It also makes me think of two other mutant-dominated realities. So there's House of M, which, once again, you have a mutant overclass and a human underclass— But that's sort of done up like a utopia as opposed to a dystopia, and the rebels are basically Wolverine, a little girl named Layla Miller who wouldn't get a personality until later, and a bunch of non-mutant superheroes. So you don't have that fighting against your own kind for the sake of equality. Or rather, you do ultimately, but it's only when the characters have been sort of pulled out of the reality and given their original memories back, which obviously isn't the case here. Yeah, And then there's Age of X-Men, but in that reality, everybody's a mutant, and so the X-Men just act as sort of defenders and spokespeople. I mean, it gets more complicated than that, but without any humans to protect, it's more a matter of deciding how the overclass, which is the only class, should be structured. So I want to go back to the idea of sort of the X-Men as fundamentally opposing power structures and opposing hegemony. Because the more I think about that, the more that makes sense to me. Because you've got other superhero teams. You've got the Defenders, which tend to work at either a local or a cosmic scale, depending on which Defenders team it is. You've got the Avengers, who tend to be very, very closely allied with the government or with, like, the status quo to to a fair extent. Um, or at least the idea of returning things to a good status quo and that the status quo can be good. But they're, they're, they're kind of aligned with existing power structures, right? Yeah, yeah, I would agree overall. I mean, certainly it's varied over the years, but overall. 
you've got Spider-Man who's Spider-Manning around and largely defined by by being the little guy. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, no, so I, I think the X-Men fundamentally have to be the opposition. And so that, I'm, I'm trying to think of universes in which the X-Men don't make sense, because they would make sense in House of M if it weren't everyone partly personality rewritten deliberately by someone. Like, House of M is the product of one person's idea. It's not an organic universe. Right. Ditto, say, Age of X. Or So it doesn't really make sense to have the X-Men as as independent groups in those. But I'm I'm trying to think of of any other set realities where they wouldn't where it wouldn't make sense for them to exist, and I'm kind of drawing a blank. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be inequality to fight against, unless it's a complete utopia. And if it's a complete utopia, then you don't really have a story. Or you've got something that's about the appearance of a complete utopia that probably has a dark underbelly, like House of X. Yeah, well, there is that. Speaking somewhat of. We have wonderful listeners and they have wonderful questions, and the first of those questions does tie into some major plot points and reveals from House of X and Powers of Ten. So, spoiler warning, if you haven't read those stories, A, you should, and B, you may want to skip ahead a couple of minutes. This stuff is a fair way out at this point. It's at least like four or five months, so. Even so. All right, uh, P. Kingdom H asks on Tumblr. Isn't the Age of Apocalypse a future where mutants are technically in control of the world? Wouldn't that mean that Apocalypse was successful in creating the kind of future Mara wants without her, and only fails when she quote-unquote helps him? So, what Peking Dimage is talking about is that in House of X and Powers of Ten, Moira McTaggart, in her various repeating lives, ultimately decides she wants a world where mutants are going to have power, where they're going to be safe and respected and powerful— In the previous timeline, she tries that a bunch of different ways, and one of those ways is to ally with Apocalypse, and that goes very, very, very badly. So I definitely—it's a really good question, I think. It makes a lot of sense. The thing is, in the Age of Apocalypse, that is not the timeline that Moira wants for mutants. The Age of Apocalypse is a fundamentally screwed-up, unstable, self-destructing timeline— I mean, if the Amicron Crystal doesn't get it, like we saw at the end of X-Men Alpha, the nukes at the end of X-Men Omega are going to. Like, it's screwed no matter what. That's not good for mutants or anybody. Right. This is not a utopia for mutants. It's 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 a universe where the dude in power happens to be a mutant and pro-mutant, but things aren't going to work out well for them. And haven't for the most part. Like, most mutants in this universe are dead, too. Exactly, and it's really only the most powerful and the most ruthless mutants who have much of any power or authority in this world. Like, they have to be both powerful enough for Apocalypse to respect and allied under a fascist, megalomaniacal dictator who likes hanging out over piles of burning skeletons. It's also worth remembering that a specific part of Mora's plan um, was to prevent Apocalypse from taking power too early, which is exactly what he did in Age of Apocalypse. Right, yeah, in her most recent life, like, that's actually specifically noted. I don't know if that's a direct callback to Age of Apocalypse, but it fits pretty well. Compelled Infidel asks on Tumblr, which X characters would be the best or worst to be quarantined with? Alright, so I'm gonna start with worst. Quentin Quire, Jubilee, Gambit, and Warren Kenneth Worthington III. That said, Gambit is canonically an excellent cook, so you'd have to deal with Gambit, but you'd eat really well. 
to an extent, you know he's gonna gotta be one of those guys who's incredibly specific about ingredients and also leaves the kitchen a mess for everyone else to clean up. That's probably true. Best? I know I'm biased here, but actually after consideration, I'm gonna have to go with Cyclops. Really? That's interesting, because for me, like, I would really want to be quarantined with people who I could talk to and hang out with and do fun stuff with and joke around and... See, I, on the other hand, would really appreciate being quarantined with someone who appreciates companionable silence. Um, the other th- reason, though, the main reason, ultimately, that I think Cyclops is the way to go is that I would get to take a break from being contingency planning guy, and I would not only get to take a break, but I would get to delegate it to someone who's much better at it than I am by virtue of being, among other things, a fictional character. So that's a plus. Like, I feel like our odds of surviving and coming out of it okay would be much, much higher. That's a valid point. And to be fair, the current version of Cyclops and the Krakoan paradigm actually seems like a pretty chill, fun guy, so, you know. Okay, Cyclops is kind of... Anyway, I think I'd get along with him. <laughs> yup. Uh, I'm going to put in a vote for Taki from the Exterminators miniseries, WizKid. He could use his powers to make so many cool props for, like, so many fun imagination games. It would be awesome to hang out with him. I think he'd get bored, though. Yeah, he probably would, and then he'd fly his WizKid copter outside, and he totally would break quarantine, and that wouldn't be good for anybody. I mean, he'd come up with with safe ways to do it. But by the same token, Forge would actually probably be a pretty good buddy for this. I mean, he would brood and he'd be a weirdo about it, but he would also make amazing simulacra of the outside world that you can mess around in. Um, and actually, I'm going to say, it, sticking on my, my, my fun kind of laconic weirdos bent, um, I'll go with Cypher. Yeah. Yeah, Cypher, again, really chill guy. Uh, actually, a lot of fun. Silly streak. I'm into it. Go ahead and say not magic. On one hand, yes, she's fun. On the other hand, she would definitely kill and eat you even if she didn't really need to. Oh, yeah, you would just wake up in the middle of the night and she would just be standing right over you, like opening her fanged mouth, and you'd be like, Ilyana, and she'd just sort of shrug and walk off, and you know that she'd be doing the same thing the next night. Yeah, yeah. Now, we luckily have not yet, at least at this point, had to choose who eats who, largely because we have the support of our amazing listeners. We are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. So for now, let's turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Look where you have landed, Logan Holmes. Facing impossible odds. Again. On your own. Again. Banned from every Denny's in a three-state radius. Again. You should have known better than to fall back in with Britannus Larp, and yet you did. Again. Every. Damn. Time. Honestly, Logan, I don't know why I even bother. And uh, the mic here is going to a very unlikely supervillain, one who I don't think even has a counterpart in this this universe. So we are we are jumping realities in order to bring in strife. Holocaust. You had a fierce and scary name like Nemesis, and you changed it to Holocaust. That's just in poor taste. And this is coming from a supervillain who tried to feed his parents baby food and then unleashed a terrible plague upon mutant kind. 
I think it's pretty obvious why you aren't cool enough to even have a single blade on your costume. Holocaust. You know what? I'm invoking my right as someone whose parents just don't understand, and as the former leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, to start assigning better names than yours. Sam Williams, you are now called Moldy Pumpernickel. But with, like, the letter Y, the sharpest vowel and the best, in place of that I and last E. Holocaust? That name sucks, and it is still a better name than yours. And Russell Grayson Hay? I'm going to give you an even worse name that's still better than Holocaust. That's right. Your name is now Warren Kenneth Worthington Third. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. This episode was recorded on March 23rd. Let's hope the world's still standing by the time it airs. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be moving into the plot proper... With Weapon X. (laughs) 